Hey, if you're like me, uh, you may have gone to a, a big city, and while you're in that big city, uh, enjoy just the, the beauty of the city, the grandeur, the, uh, the architecture, the people. But then at some point, realize that uh, the people that you are interacting with that is in that city, that they are lost and without Jesus. Uh, that was my experience the first time I went to New York City. I enjoyed it. I was overwhelmed by the grandeur. I was overwhelmed by some of the, 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 the buildings, the food, the culture, the people. And I'll never forget walking down the street with my wife. And, and as we were walking, I just got hit with this deep emotion, this emotion of sadness as I realized that most of the people that I saw and many of the people that we were interacting were lost and were without Jesus. And if we're honest this morning, when we experience that, when we experience that sadness because of lostness, sometimes we can feel a bit overwhelmed. We can feel overwhelmed as we walk the metaphorical streets of social media. We can feel overwhelmed as we watch Netflix. We can feel overwhelmed as we interact with lost family members and lost friends, as we go in and out of work with a sense that, Lord, I'm overwhelmed because I know that the majority of the people that are in front of me, that they do not know you, that they are not living for your glory, that they are separated from you, that they are alienated from you. And the question is, what do we do with that sadness? What do we do with those emotions? What we do, do we do with this sense of being overwhelmed, this sense of not being able to impact culture or the people we love the way that we want to. Well, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is going to find himself in a beautiful city of Athens, and he's going to find himself overwhelmed, deeply distressed with the lostness of that city. And today we are going to learn about what to do when we find ourselves like that. And we're going to see that the glory of the Lord must fuel us must fuel us to take the gospel to people who do not know Christ. If you stand to your feet, we're going to go to Acts chapter 17. And we're just going to read verse 16, but we'll work ourselves through the whole story. Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 16. And today we want to see how the glory of the Lord can fuel us to patiently persuade people to know Christ. And the precious word of God reads, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <laughs> so in this text, we see that the apostle Paul is, is burdened with the city of Athens and, and what he sees in Athens. And the first thing we want to look at in today's text is that we must have a burden for the glory of the Lord. Athens was a city known for its architecture. It was known for its athletics. It was considered the intellectual capital of the world. When you think of Athens, think of Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, Michigan State, <laughs> go green, go white. All road in one, right? One of those names didn't fit there. All right. But think of this intellectual capital of the world where Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, their literature, the, the, the arts, uh, the philosophy, uh, this, this kind of humanism, this human liter, uh, uh, liberty. Uh, this was the kind of intellectual uh, uh, a city of the world. 
And the apostle Paul is in the city and he is waiting for Timothy and Silas. Timothy and Silas there in Berea. Uh, Paul was with them. They were engaging in the synagogues. They were preaching the gospel. And some Jews from Thessalonica came up uh, to the city of Berea and they harassed the apostle Paul. And Paul had already been beaten up a few times to this point. So Timothy and, si and Silas and the rest of the disciples think it's a good idea to send Paul on. Say, Paul, you go before us as we continue to preach the gospel and take the gospel to these cities. And you allow us to stay here and we'll meet up with you. So Paul goes to this beautiful city of Athens, and it's his first time there. He finds himself alone in this cultural uh, capital, and we see that he is deeply burdened, verse 16, because the city was full of idols. And Paul could have went to that city and just looked around at the buildings and the monuments of Athens. He could have just went to the city and, and noticed their ancient citadel, which elevated um, at the top of the city and overlooked uh, the city. He could have gotten caught up in their national glory and, the, and this beauty that people came from miles and miles away to see. But he saw the thing behind the thing. He saw the idolatry and the lostness of that city. It was full of idols. In fact, one theologian said that Athens had more idols than it had men. And this greatly provokes Paul to the point that he is filled with divine jealousy for the name and fame of God. We think of idolatry and we look at this text. Paul was primarily speaking of these physical statues that filled the city. Everywhere you turn, there were statues to another God. There were statues to uh, and temples and shrines dedicated to many gods. But when we talk about idols, we're not just talking about physical statues. We're talking about philosophies. We're talking about values that take the place of the one true living God. An idol is anything or anyone that comes before God. And the Apostle Paul is sitting there in this beautiful city. After walking around, he is sad and he is deeply distressed. He is deeply bothered that these people are not living primarily for God's glory. And that must be our deepest motivation for wanting to reach people with the gospel of Jesus. Our deepest motivation cannot simply be that we don't want them to go to hell. That is a, a part of our motivation. But the deepest motivation should be that we want to see God glorified in our city that we want to see God glorified amongst our neighbors, that we want to see God glorified amongst our family, that we want to see God glorified at our university with our friends, that we look at human beings and we see that God created them and made them in his image so that they would know him, find joy, and fill the earth with his beauty, with his glory, with righteousness and justice. Paul here is reminiscent of Isaiah in Isaiah 42 and 8, where it says, Isaiah says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. This is a divine jealousy that God has. Not a petty jealousy, but a divine jealousy. And the apostle Paul is filled with the divine jealousy for the glory of the Lord. To borrow from John Stott, he says, now, jealousy is the resentment of 
rivals. And whether it is good or evil depends on whether the rival has any business to be there. To be jealous of someone who threatens to outshine us in beauty, brains, or sport is sinful because we cannot claim a monopoly of talent in those areas. If, on the other hand, a third party enters a marriage, the jealousy of the injured person who is being displaced is righteous because the intruder has, not, has no right to be there. It is the same with God who says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, Jesus uh, taught us that he has sent us into the world on mission to not be of the world, but to, to give the world this message, this good news, not to massage the world, but to give this world hope to preach to this world that they are not condemned if they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we must be burdened enough to take this message to the world. If we're going to patiently persuade people to, be, uh, to follow Jesus, we have to be like the Apostle Paul. We have to take time to observe the culture. We have to take time to be, to be burdened by what we see to learn, to see the thing behind the thing, to enjoy the beauty, to enjoy the culture, to enjoy the diversity, to enjoy the creativity, but it can't stop there. We have to see the behind of these philosophies, the behind values, the behind beauty is brokenness. And that's what the Apostle Paul is, is seeing here. Here's some questions for you. Do you find yourself distressed by the lostness of people in this city, in your neighborhood, at your school? When you think about people not knowing Jesus, are you motivated uh, to, to Christ, to, to share Christ with them because you desire to see God glorified in their lives and you don't want them to go to hell? Does the lostness and the idolatry of those around you cause you to run towards people in curiosity and compassion and conviction, or does it cause you to run away from them? You know, we have so many Christians that complain about culture and that complain about things that's happening in society and it feels like we're losing society. We're losing the, the way that it should be. And rather than have compassion rather than learn, rather than draw near to people who are different than us. Many times we settle for just looking around and complaining. But we see that's not what the Apostle Paul is going to do here. The Apostle Paul is concerned about the glory of the Lord, and he is going to step into the lostness with compassion and with patience to persuade people for Jesus. And that's what we see. Point number two, the glory of the Lord leads us to, to patiently persuade people to come to Christ. Paul's burden leads him to engage people. Paul here is going to be like a, a master chess player. A master chess player is able to play uh, multiple chess players at the same time. I don't know if you've ever seen it YouTube it. If you've ever seen a master chess player, he will set up four tables, four or five tables, and stand up and play each person at the same time. And so while he is playing each person at the same time, the other uh, people are, are just trying to play him. They're just trying to figure out his next move. And he's able to, to talk in a way that, to play in a way that engages 
all of these different ideas. I love the Apostle Paul here in this text. He's going to be like that master chess player. We see in verse 17, it says, so he reasoned in a synagogue, both with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace by day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some uh, I'm sorry, debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul, the Bible says, he begins to engage different people. He's burdened. And the first people he goes to is, is his, his kinfolk. Uh, uh, he goes to the synagogue and he begins to talk to those in the synagogue who are both Jews and God-fearing Greeks about the Lord. He begins to preach the gospel to them, but he doesn't stop there. The text says, then he goes to the marketplace. When you think of marketplace, think of a a mall. The mall meets the university. This was a place where people um, would come to shop. They would buy food. They would buy clothes. But in the center of the marketplace was a place where people would share uh, their philosophies and they would debate on uh, what they believed and why they served different gods. Well, Paul enters into the marketplace and he begins to preach. He begins to debate with people. And there's two groups there. The first group is called the Epicureans. The Epicureans believe that happiness was the chief pleasure in life. And this was more than sensual pleasure. They believe that an intellectual pleasure. They believe in intellectual ascent. They also rejected the resurrection. They believe that when a person died, their existence ended. And then there were the Stoics. The Stoics were, were different in that their main goal in life was to bring harmony. Um, they, they believed in uh, nature and its laws and just kind of the strict control of human passions and emotions and affections. And they also rejected the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul is debating these people like a master chess player. He has studied them. He, he understands their philosophy. And the text says that he is preaching the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. He is preaching about Christ. He's preaching the crucifixion. He's preaching the resurrection. I remember when I was in seminary, I got into a, a, a debate with a, a guy who was talking about Acts 17. And he was convinced that the reason that Paul only seen a, saw a couple people come to Christ in Acts chapter 17 was because Paul was not preaching Christ and him crucified. And I disagree with him. I'm, I'm, I said, how in the world do you get that from this text? He says, well, the cross is not mentioned. I said, man, you can't preach the resurrection without preaching the cross. The Bible says that he preached the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, he may not have started where we want him to start or where we think he should have started, which I think he started at the right place. He didn't start with the cross um, as he did in Berea. The Bible says that just before earlier in the chapter that Paul is in Berea and he opened the scripture and reasoned with them. Well, that's because Paul's audience in Berea were Jews. They were not Greek philosophers. So he started with what was common with them. Well, the Apostle Paul, we're going to see in this text, he's going to start with what's common for these Greeks, for these Athenians. And what's common with them is Greek philosophy. So he's going to meet them where they are, but he preached Christ and he preached the resurrection. And what was the result of Paul preaching Christ in a resurrection? The text tells us right here that he got mocked, that they called him a babbler. This word babbler is, gives us a word picture of a chicken 
who is picking up seeds off the ground and who's kind of nibbling at seeds, putting it down and then picking up seeds and pulling them down. And, and what they're saying is that Paul didn't have an original thought, that he was scatterbrained, that he wasn't making sense, that his ideas had no depth, that he was just regurgitating um, other people's ideas. Because this thought of the resurrection, it offended them. It got to their heart. It got to their core. But Paul was patient with these Athenians, and he continued to persuade them that Jesus Christ was Lord. We see in verse 20, they say, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Verse 22, and Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So the apostle Paul goes before the Areopagus, and this was on, on top of the hill of Athens, uh, which we, another word for this is Mars Hill. And he goes to Mars Hill, and this is where the, the top philosophers, the top thinkers got together to hear new ideas about religion and philosophy. So this was kind of a spiritual shark tank. They would have people come in. These people would say, this is what we believe. And like on Shark Tank, if you've ever seen that show, um, they would even say, yes, this is good. You can set up an idol here and we'll worship your God along with the other gods. And they'll say, man, get out of here. This is crazy. So Paul is on Mars Hill and he's at this spiritual shark tank. And the Bible says that they want him to speak. They, they want to interview him to see what he has to say. But what I love about the Apostle Paul is how he is engaging culture. So how is he engaging culture? The first thing we see that he observes Athens, that he sees the thing behind the thing. He allows what he sees to, to burden him. And it's not a, a right, self-righteous burden that he has. It's a burden for the glory of the Lord. It's a realization that these people do not know the truest joy, that they do not know Jesus they don't know his resurrection power there in bondage. And it leads him to do further investigation and to begin to speak to the people of Athens. But what the text says in verse 23 is that he walked around and he looked carefully at their objects of worship. He looked carefully at their culture. When was the last time you took time to really just stop and to think about our culture, to think about what we value? to think about the average person's philosophy, to be, think about the individualism that invades our culture. One person rightly said, if you want to know what a city worships, take time to look at its buildings, the, the biggest buildings, and what they invest the, the most money into. And normally behind that value, there's a, there's a God. Behind our, our big buildings for athletics, there's a desire to be entertained. And entertainment is a good thing, but it becomes bad when it becomes the ultimate thing. Behind the, the big parks and the things that we put together for, for our families, there may be an idol. Family is a good thing, but when it's the ultimate thing, 
it becomes a false God. So Paul takes time and he's studying, he's observing, he's seeing what these people are investing in. He takes time to know their culture and then he's able to engage and he begins to engage. He says, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So they had all of these gods and they were so afraid of missing God. They were so afraid of leaving out of God, a God. They were so afraid of being cursed by a God that they just built an altar and they said, this is to the unknown God. This is to the God we may have missed. Let's worship him. But look, out of all the gods that Paul sees, out of all the statues that Paul sees, it's this statue that draws his attention. Because now he's thinking about a salvific paradigm. He's saying, how can I take this God that they're worshiping and bring Jesus to them? So he finds common ground with them. And he begins to engage from that place. And if we're going to reach the lost, we have to find common ground with them. That's what he does. And he begins to build this argument. And in his argument, he's going to try to show uh, these, uh, the people of Athens, that God is this creator king who deserves to be worshiped, who deserves to be worshiped alone. He goes on to say, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So now he starts preaching verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, uh, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. So the apostle Paul points out the fact that there is one true God and he made everything in it and the heavens of the earth. And then he pokes at their logic. He says, if God is the one who made the world and everything in it, how can he be inhabited or contained in your little temples? He's pointing out the, the failure in their logic. This is reminiscent of Psalm 24. When the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he founded upon the waters and established upon the seas. Who shall ascend to the, the mountain of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? The person who has not sworn deceitfully or lifted up their souls to idols. The psalmist in Psalm 24 points people to this God who is the creator and the king of all things. And he's saying the person who gets to know this God is one who is not living in deceit and who is not worshiping false gods. And later the psalmist says, so lift up your heads, O ye gates, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord. He is the king of glory. And that's exactly what the apostle Paul is trying to do. He's trying to get them to lift up their heads to take their eyes off of these idols that they have made as they have tried to make God in their own image. They've tried to make a manageable God that could make them feel good, that they could appease. And he's saying, take your eyes off of these gods and lift up your head to the one true living God. Verse 25, he says, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God doesn't need anything from us. 
Paul says. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything in it. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 150, he says, let everyone who has breath praise the Lord. Paul is saying God is jealous. And his jealousy is the divine jealousy because he is the one who has given you life. He is the one who's given you breath and your life and your breath is meant to be lived for him. Verse 26, from one man, he made Adam. Or he, I'm sorry, from one man, he made all the nations and they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of the land. So he points back to Adam and he says, everyone from all of the nations come from him and that God is sovereign. He's the one who appointed times in history and he's the one appointed the boundaries for people to live. And this points us back to Genesis chapter 11, to Babel, where you have a people coming together, uh, creating a city, and they're really on one accord. But unfortunately, this accord is edging God out. It's this kind of humanistic glory where they are building uh, things, not for the glory of God. And we know in the book of Genesis that Adam and Eve was to go and to spread God's glory throughout the world. Not for the glory of God, but for the glory of themselves. In verse 27, we see that the Apostle Paul points out and really why God dispersed people and gave them and confused the language. He says God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach him and find him, though he is not far from us. He says, God dispersed people from the land, dispersed people from each other, confused the language because he deserves to be worshiped by them. Therefore, verse 29, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. See what the Apostle Paul is doing? He is patiently persuading them. He has learned their philosophy. He has observed what they value, what they believe. And he is meeting them where they are in order to give them Jesus. To give them Jesus. He calls them to repent for not worshiping the one who has truly created them and truly made them. But I love what he does in verse 31. This is absolutely amazing. Look at it. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul says, listen, you all can no longer claim ignorance. Because I am here and I am revealing to you that this creator king must be worshipped through a man. And this man is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ deserves to be worshipped because he defeated death. Because he is the resurrected one. He meets them where he is, where they are. And then he gives them Jesus. I remember having a conversation with a young man. I had uh, had the opportunity to baptize his wife about a, a year before. She was sitting in our church parking lot week in and week out, and she just never came in. And one day, one of our ushers, our servant leaders, 
us saw uh, that this woman was sitting in her car multiple weeks in a row, and she invited her into the church. The woman was lost, had no idea about Jesus, did not grow up religious, heard the gospel, was baptized, came to faith. Her family went through a crisis. Some members of the church stepped in around Christmas time, gave them money, uh, bought them gifts so that they would, their kids, they had uh, four young kids, that their kids would be able to have a Christmas. Her husband, who was a literally a drug lord here in Louisville, um, who was as lost as could be, um, who most guys just feared uh, because he was kind of in a, in, a, in a drug scene here in Louisville, uh, ended up coming to me just to say thank you for this gift. And I later learned out that he was running the streets because I had some more guys from the neighborhood come and they saw him and they were afraid. But I get to have this conversation with this guy and I begin to just talk to him and ask him about his interests and ask him about his life. And he's very honest and, and open. And then he says to me, he says, you know, I'm not religious. I don't come to church, but I know I'm a good person. And he says, I, I may uh, get money in a way that people don't, don't think is right, but I'm a good person. He began to give me all these reasons why he's a good person and the people that he helps with the money that he gets. And I never forget having this conversation with his brother and saying, do you mind if I redefine good for you? And I asked him 10 questions and asked him, had he ever done these things? And he says, yes. And then from there, I showed him God's standard of goodness and how we all broke God, break God's commandments and we all are lost and in need of salvation. And I'll never forget the weight that came over him. And then after this weight where he realized, he said, I am a sinner. I am lost. I have not been seen, uh, been seen correctly. I'll never forget how suddenly this weight turned to joy as he discovered that there was someone that was bigger than him, that loved him in spite of himself. He came to faith. We were able to baptize him. He's a strong Christian now. Amen. But when I think about the Apostle Paul in Athens, I think about how, how Paul saw he was burdened for these people. He observed their culture. He saw their lostness. He was jealous for God's glory, so he engaged them. He started where they were. He got to know them. He asked questions because he saw that their, their biggest need wasn't, wasn't just to do right. Their biggest thing that they needed was to see that God was great, that, that they were sinners, and that this God who was great has given them an invitation to have true life. And that he is a known God. He's not an unknown God. He's a, a God who desires, who has made himself known through special revelation. And we can look at general revelation. We can look at all the things that he's created. But we, we also need to know that he has come. And he's come to save and to deliver and to give hope. And that's what the Apostle Paul does. And the third thing we see here is that that our burden and Paul's burden for the glory of the Lord, it will affect people. Now here, it says that some people sneered, the text says, when they heard Paul preaching about the resurrection. Some people were interested, and then some people became followers. Verse 34 says, some people became followers, and Paul believed, and among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman of Demarius, and a number of others. 
And we must know as we preach this good news, as we preach the gospel, that people are going to respond differently. Some people are going to sneer. This word sneer means that they laughed and they made fun of them. And what was their hangup? Their hangup was the resurrection. They were philosophers. They believed that in YOLO, you only live once. What do you mean there's going to be a resurrection of the body and there's going to be an afterlife? They sneered. And people are going to sneer at you. And Jesus told us that people will sneer at us. Remember the parable of the sower? He says a farmer went out and he sowed some seed and some seed, some seed fell on ground in which weeds came and choked it. Some seed fell off the path and it didn't catch root. Some seed was sown in a and birds came and took it, which was representation of Satan taking the seed and discouraging them. And some seed fell on good ground. Paul says that our message is either going to be an aroma of life or an aroma of death. And our job is to be male men and male women. A male man and a male, and, and, and a male person, they don't open the mail and decide what they're going to give and what they're not going to give. Oh, man, this is a medical bill. I can't give this to them. They'll mess up their day. No, a male person, they just give what they're told to give. And that's us. We're called to know people, to love people, and to give them Jesus. To give them Jesus. So let's sum this up. If we're going to patiently persuade people to follow Jesus, we got to remember a few things. Number one, we have to take time to watch with discerning eyes. We have to observe and learn the culture around us. We have over 100 people on the mission field, about 45 units, members from our church that are serving in international areas. And each of them, when they go to a new city, in an international city, they take time to learn the culture, to learn the language, to learn what people value so that they can connect with people. And we've got to do the same thing here in Louisville. We've got to do the same thing here in Shelby Park. We've got to do the same thing with our, our, our loved ones. Uh, one of the most discouraging things for me is the way that, that Christians interact with the LGBTQ community. Um, sometimes we throw stones and rocks at people without getting to know them without knowing their story, without loving them. You may have a, a lost loved one who is, a caught, uh, who is, is living a, a promiscuous life. Don't go to them and talk to them about their promiscuous life. Get to know them and give them Jesus. Sometimes we try to clean people up before, we, before the Lord catches and captures them. But you do this by loving people. Second, be provoked for God's glory. We don't make it personal. We remember that everyone is created in the image of God and that God is good. And he wants to fill them up with true joy and true life. Be jealous for God's glory. See that God wants to use the, this person for his glory and for his fame. Jesus told us to pray, hallowed be thy name. Holy is thy name. Daily, we should be praying, God, glorify your name. Make your name holy amongst the nations. Make it hallowed. Third, we want to find common ground with people. I love what Paul does here. He quotes their poets back to him. 
He says, as your poet wrote, as your philosopher wrote, in him we live, we move and have our being. He called truth, truth in their worldview. Everything in culture doesn't need to necessarily uh, 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 be done away with. There's some great things about our culture and about beauty and about, about what people believe. There's some things that we can find common ground with about justice and other areas. We want to find that common ground with people and see how we can use a salvific paradigm. See how we can point them to Jesus. Fourth, we want to make much of Jesus. When we talk about God, we want to show them how vast, how big, and how beautiful he is. That's what Paul does. He shows them how beautiful God is. And finally, we want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ unashamedly. They laughed at Paul and they said, what you bring to our ears are strange. And Paul just said, oh, no, 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 it's not strange. Listen, it is strange. God became man. That's strange. That's unusual. He lived a sinless life while being fully man and fully divine. That's unusual. He died, was put in a borrowed tomb, defeated death, came back, hung out with his disciples and his homies for 40 days, taught them about how everything in the Old Testament and Old Covenant points to him. And then he took off into heaven. And now he's in heaven on the right hand side of God and he's coming back again. It is strange. Don't apologize for it. It's strange to us because we are not God. It's not strange to God. It's normal to God because he's God. That's what he does. He created everything. He created the laws of physics. He can bend them any way he wants to. He owns gravity. That's why he can just jump in the air and go to the heavens and not come back down. We say keep Louisville weird. Keep Christianity strange. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I pray that you would see how much God loves you and how much we do. We love you because what Jesus did for us, Jesus saw us in our idolatry. He was provoked. And instead of condemning us, he ran towards us. He showed us our errors. He showed us the, the flaws in our logic. And then he died for us and he rose and defeated death. And as a result, now we have eternal life and we have hope and we have joy because we're, we're worshiping our creator king. And I want you to hear this sermon if you do not know Jesus and see that God loves you, that he sent his son for you, and that he saved people from their sins so that they would be able to come to you, to get to know you, and to tell you about his love for you. And I want to invite you to know him. And every Sunday when we gather, we take a meal together to remind us of what God has done for us, to remind us of how much he cares for the world. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread and said, this bread is my body broken for you. And he lifted a cup. He says, this cup is my blood, which was shed for you. As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And here at Sojourn, we take a piece of the bread and we dip it in wine. The wine is marked by twine or juice, whatever your conscience permits. We take this meal to remind ourselves of God's love for us and to remind us that he's coming back again. If you're not a Christian, we're going to ask you not to partake in this meal, but rather we're going to ask you to take Christ. In just a second, we're going to have some servant leaders come forward. Those in the front half of the room, you come to the front. Those in the back half of the room, you can go to the back to take communion. Let's pray.